Today's sermon text is Luke 6, verses 12 through 49. It can be found in the Bible on the rack in front of you on page 862. Hear the word of the Lord. In these days he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve, whom he named apostles. Simon, whom he called Peter, and Andrew his brother, and James and John, and Philip and Bartholomew, and Matthew and Thomas, and James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot, and Judas the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. And he came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured, and all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him, and he healed them all. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you, and from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will, not, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. He also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? And a disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone when he is fully trained will be like his teacher. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do nothing, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take out the speck that is in your eye, when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite! First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. 
The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when the flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. And when the stream broke against it, immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Morning. Let me let me pray for us as we turn now to God's word. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of of this word and of your church. I pray even now as we look to it that you would help us to conform our lives individually and our our lives together, our life together to what we see in your scripture. And now Lord, would you make the meditations of all of our hearts and the words of my mouth be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Uh, over, over the last couple of weeks, as we've been walking through the gospel of Luke, we've seen a few different communities kind of rise up and bubble up towards the surface. A few different groups of people. So last week, if you remember, we spent a lot of time looking at Jesus and his interaction with this group called the Pharisees, a group of highly religious people who were zealous to keep the law, but who have, at this point, they've set themselves in opposition to Jesus. If you, if you just go up one verse from our passage this morning to chapter 6, verse 11, you'll see like maybe even at this point, the organizing principle around these people is that they are now a group dedicated to finding a way to bring harm to him. We've also witnessed in the passages before and even in the passage today, you see this large crowd, people who are coming to Jesus to hear him teach and to be healed by him. They're they're not organized like the Pharisees are. They don't have the same credentials that they do. They're not the well-respected religious leaders. They are instead people like Fisherman and a tax collector or tax collectors, a man who was paralyzed, a man with leprosy, those who are sick, afflicted by demonic possession. And now from the the outside, we can kind of look at this second group of people and think it is a really bad place to start a religious movement. Uh, If you want to think in modern terms, if you want your product, your making something that you want to sell, you don't find people like me to sell it for you. I logged into my Instagram account yesterday for the first time in months to see that I have a grand total of 182 followers, and my last post was in 2017. I'm not an influencer, and you don't want me to sell your whatever it is. 
And no first century marketing scholar, if there was such a thing, is going to tell Jesus it's a really good idea to set out to start your group of people, your church, your community with these kind of guys. But this morning we're going to see that Jesus does exactly that. That he establishes a new community and he sets up what is in some ways their constitution or an enduring testimony about who they are and how they are meant to live. So this morning we're going to begin walking through this passage and looking at the characteristics of Jesus's new community that he is building. And I, I want to be, I'm trying to be careful with words I'm using here. I want to use that word community very intentionally. Like Jesus already has a large group of individuals who are around him, who are following him. But his goal is not just to have a large number of individuals. He wants those who follow him to live together as a particular group of people. A community in the world with a distinct look. A distinct way of relating to the world and to relating to one another. And so as we, as we walk through this, it's very natural. I hope you think some of this as we read. What does this mean for me? Like, how do I apply this to my life? Great. Think about that. Particularly, though, if you're a member of Philadelphia Baptist Church, I want you to think, how do I apply this to, to our life? Uh, to the life that God has called us to together as brothers and sisters in Jesus' new community. And that's been my prayer for us, that we, this morning, would see the beauty of this vision of community, and we would long, we would desire with everything in us to conform our lives and our life together to what we see here in Scripture. Now, my, if you, if you heard this text read and thought, it's a, it's a lot of text, you are right. And my intention, until midday on Friday, was to preach through all of this text, and then at midday on Friday, I realized that I was already over the amount of words I normally have in a sermon and wasn't finished. So because I love you and know that I'm, you can't listen to me for an hour and a half, uh, we're going to do this in part one and part two. I'm going to call this pulling a quarry. Uh, we're going to pull a quarry and split this into two sermons. But I did want Mark to read all of this text because there's two ways of looking at this. And this is, I even talked with some brothers this week about how, how we think about even dividing our texts. There, if you walk into an art gallery, there's something to be said about stepping back from a painting and just taking all of it in. Seeing how all of it kind of flows together, how it comes together to make a beautiful portrait. And that's what this whole sermon that Jesus gives is doing. It's one complete, beautiful portrait. And there's also a time when you want to, if you go to an art gallery, you want to step up close and see, I can't believe the amount of detail put into that piece. And because this text, I think, has so much to say to you, brothers and sisters, you who are members of this church, those who belong to the body of Christ, I think it's worth our time to slow down some and to pause and to look at the detail and take care. And we say, how do we prayerfully put into practice this text in our own life together. So with that, let's turn to Luke chapter 6, verse 12. And this morning, I plan on us looking at three characteristics of Jesus' new community, and then we'll look at three characteristics next week. So three characteristics of Jesus' new community. Number one, 
It's founded through prayer. Founded through prayer. Now, throughout the book of Luke, whenever you see Jesus praying, well, there's, there's talk about prayer a lot of times, but when you see Jesus himself praying, you should just know something really important is about to happen. This is, this is like Luke saying, we interrupt this broadcast to bring you a special news bulletin. Uh, if you have your Bible open, you can just flip back to Luke 3.21. It's like the first place where you see this, Luke 3.21. When all the people were baptized, when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, and what happens right after that? The heavens are opened, the Holy Spirit descends on him like a dove, a voice from heaven comes out and says, "This is, uh, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. It's an important place where we see God himself declaring who this person is. Uh, we, we saw it a few, I think two weeks ago in 516 where Jesus prays. It's just like this throw, feels like a throwaway sentence, but the next story you find is Jesus forgiving a man's sins. It's the first time you see that in the, in the scriptures, in the Bible, where Jesus says, I'm praying, and now I'm going to show you I'm the one that forgives sins. You can go forward in a few weeks, in Luke chapter 9, we'll see that he prays again, and soon after that, Peter will say, you are the Christ of God. And the next time he prays, he's transfigured in chapter 9 with Moses and Elijah appearing with on the mountain. It's really important when you see Jesus praying. And here, before Jesus calls and creates his new community, he spends time in an all-night prayer. And I want you to just pause and think about what that communicates about the importance of this. All those other things seem very self-evident. It's important that Jesus is the Son of God, that he forgives sins, that he is the Christ. And when you get here, maybe you think, this, this is less important. But Jesus, in praying for this, is showing something of the value of the community he's building. I, I, I know that many of you pray. I doubt very seriously that you spend all night praying for a really good parking spot at Publix or Aldi. But, I, but I'm sure, I, I know for a fact that some of you have probably spent all night praying that your spouse's cancer treatment would go well the next day. Or that God would bring your son to faith. What you, what you spend that kind of time and energy and effort praying for shows something about the importance of what is coming. And that Jesus would spend and wrestle all night in prayer shows us something of the value of the importance of this community that he is building. This, this group of disciples brought together in apostles going forward in the church is not an afterthought to Jesus' plan. All along, he has been wrestling, praying that he would build new community, a new body who would follow him. And beyond the importance of this community, this, I hope it just shows us something about the value and the importance of prayer. Jesus, the very Son of God, the one who is one with the Father, would spend his own time in prayer. So brothers and sisters, when you bow your head over a cup of coffee in the morning, or when we do things like we just did and David led us in prayer as Peter will lead us in prayer later today. We are engaging in some of the most valuable and potentially the most powerful work that we can do. There's a lot of things we can work at. A lot of things we can give energy and effort to do. But in prayer, we are admitting we 
are in desperate need of God to do something that we cannot do in our own power. So just see right here at the very start of Jesus' new community. This little one verse, don't think of it as a throwaway, as a transition sentence. It is, it is the heart, the foundation of this community. And even in thinking about this and applying it to your life and to our lives, just stop and take stock. Uh, what, what is it in your life that you are trying to accomplish in your own strength? Even as a church, like we can do a lot of good things. We can build people and draw people into a building with some really great programs or a really good ad campaign, which we don't have, but we could if we said we want to do that. But, but if we do something like that, if you draw, if you finish a project, if you're able to complete all the work you've set out to do without dependence on the Lord, who gets the glory in the end? Who do we look at and say, built this thing? And we want to live our, waves, our, our lives in a way that we say, God has done this. And apart from him, we can do nothing. I've said this to the elders. I've mentioned it to some of you. I, I long. Uh, I, I hope and I'm praying that this is not something that I think is built over the course of a week or two weeks. I hope that our church is one that when you look at and think, what is the culture of Philadelphia Baptist Church? I pray that we look and see a culture of prayerful people and a prayerful church that, that it would not be uncommon just in the normal routine conversations that you have with one another that you would ask how can I be praying for you? And even maybe that's, that's not strange in Christianese. Like most Christians ask that type of question. I pray that you would find it very normal for you to stop and say, can I pray for you right now? Can I, can I just ask the Lord to, for that thing that is on your heart that is weighing you down? And to ask about that thing even the week after and say, I've been praying for you and lifting you up in this way. I've been praying for our church and this thing. And members of Philadelphia Baptist Church, if you want to put that into practice today, uh, I would recommend just starting a habit of prayerfully praying through the community that Jesus is building in his church here. And I know that many of you were happy that we put together a membership directory, and I know that you knew it was going to the membership directory at one point. Friends, if if you have that, I, I hope that's helpful as you're you belong here as a member i want you to know the names and faces of people around you that's important it's good to be able to greet people by name when you see them that's that's not the most important thing for the most important reason we created that and then we want to pass that out the reason that's in your hands is because i want you to build a habit of not just thinking about these people and not just saying i know your name and show that you're valuable but that i can show you i i'm actually lifting you up before god daily weekly monthly you can take one of those and just walk through in prayer for your other brothers and sisters if you don't have a membership directory find david find me after the service if you're a member here we'd love to get that to you but just, just imagine, think about what God might be pleased to do if we were regularly praying for Kermit and Jackie Lewis and Mike Henderson, homebound members who we don't see, that God would make them faithful under trial. How we might be praying for those who you come across and say, I've not seen in a long time, that God would unite their hearts to another local church, that they would persist in faithfulness. 
As we pray for children that you see in there and say, God, we want this church not to last for three years, for ten years, but for fifty, for a hundred. And not because this church is great, but because your gospel is worth that. Lord, we pray for the, the youth in our church who we know in the next years are going off to college, who are looking towards the future. Would you help them to stand firm in what they have heard and taught, been taught, how they have seen Christ? Lord, if, if, if Jesus valued this new community he was building enough to pray for it, we should do no less. We don't just want to work really hard. We want to ask God to do the work that only he can do. And I, and I do. I, I, if you hear that from me and feel, I, I hope what you hear is an encouragement to keep doing what you're doing. I, I know so many of you who, if I email or text and say, I'm, I'm praying for you, this I get often reminders back, well, I'm doing the same for you. And I do. I need your prayers, but so do the people sitting around you. I want to encourage you, keep going. Keep praying for one another. And God has built and founded this community on prayer. We want to not neglect that ourselves. So this is, this is a community that's founded on prayer. At the very beginning, Jesus says, let me show you how important this is. I'm going to spend all night praying for this new group, this new community. Second, this new community is united in Jesus. This new community is united in Jesus. Uh, in verses 13 and 9 through 19, we get a glimpse. You kind of have three concentric circles. You've got a large group of people called a great multitude of people. They're curious about Jesus. They, they've come to see healing, to hear some teaching, and, and they're checking things out. Uh, within that, it's kind of a smaller group. You have his disciples, men and women who have made up their mind that it's worth following Jesus. And here, in verses 13 through 15, you get even smaller group of 12 apostles. Now, kids, uh, there are 12 is a number that shows up in the Bible a couple different times. But do you remember in the Old Testament, there is a group of 12 people. Where do we see a group of 12 men in the Old Testament? Do you remember? 12. Tro- oh, oh, look, I've got one. Carolina. Sorry, I can't hear you. Yeah, Joseph and his 12 brothers. That's right. So like the 12 tribes of Israel. God, God, you heard kind of Deuteronomy 7 read earlier. Not you kind of heard. You heard Deuteronomy 7 read earlier. God chose out of all the nations of the earth, this group of 12 brothers and all the people who would come after them and said, I'm setting my affection on you. You are going to be the community, the community that displays my salvation, like the glory and wonder that I pulled you out of Egypt and gave you salvation. And I'm going to show my character even through you. And here, as we see like these 12 disciples, it's not an accident that he's pulling 12 apostles. God is saying he's doing the same kind of thing. He wants a new community, a church that displays you have been pulled from death to life. And I'm showing through you, through the apostles and everyone who has built on the foundation of the apostles. Here is what it looks like to be pulled from death to life. If you want to see what the character of God looks like, you're meant to be able to look to these 12 of the people who flow after them. And this, this display, these disciples, again, is a really surprising group of people. I'm saying that they're united in Jesus because there are people on this list who would never, ever be natural friends. 
you have in verse 15. So if you look in verse 15, you'll see the name Matthew. If you remember Matthew, we said is probably another name for Levi, who's a tax collector. And if you look down just a few names from Levi, you have this man named Simon. Uh, from, so Matthew, so the very end of verse 15, you have Simon, who was called the Zealot. Uh, we talked about tax collectors a few weeks ago. They were people who were Jewish and who worked for the Roman government. They were not liked by most Jewish people around them. And if there was a we hate tax collector society, the zealots were the presidents of that. They, they get their name zealot because they are zealous for the law of Israel for, to protect their Jewish identity. So they look at Roman occupiers and those who work with them as hated oppressors. Tax collectors are working with them. This is like saying, I want to build a team of people and I want a Ukrainian freedom fighter and a Russian spy to kind of show this new group. They don't get along. Beyond that, there are a bunch of nobodies. You could go try to study all 12 people in this list and some of these people you say, we know nothing other than their name right here. So not only are there nobodies, they, they don't have natural affinities that would bring them together. Nothing that which they could say, you know what, this... This group coheres really easily. They they don't vote for the same candidates. They don't root for the same teams. They don't shop at the same grocery stores. They don't have the same hobbies. But there is one person around whom they've oriented their entire life. And so when somebody would come across this group of 12 and they would ask Matthew or ask Simon, why is it like... Simon, you're, you belong to the zealots. You're zealous for this. Why is it you're hanging out with that guy? The only answer that would make sense to Matthew and Simon is we belong to the same master. We, we think this guy is worth uniting our entire life around. And they would build this community that's united around Jesus. And that does something different than a book club or a gym. Uh, pastors Jamie Dunlop and Mark Dever, they call this community gospel revealing community. Here's what they say. They say in gospel revealing community, many relationships would never exist but for the truth and power of the gospel. You can't physically see the gospel. It's simply truth. But when we encourage community that is obviously supernatural, it makes the gospel visible. And that gospel is made visible because it demonstrates what David read earlier for us. Ephesians 2, 13 and 14. Now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. There is something unique displayed when you say, I don't know, really, we are friends we love each other, but it's not because we're exactly alike. It's not because we share the same hobbies. It's not because we're the same age and listen to the same music. It's because we are following this risen Christ together. And he is the one who unites us. So members of Philadelphia Baptist Church in particular, what do you think that the world sees when it looks in and sees the relationships that you have with other Christians? And maybe more specifically, not just other Christians, but other church members. Would they look around and say that your relationships are really normal? Because you basically spend time with people who are exactly like you. Or or would the way you care for someone who is different just be a surprising shock to them? 
Like why you're showing up at the hospital room of somebody who you're not related to. Now, I'm, I'm not saying that you cannot or should not be friends with people who are similar to you. Those are good relationships. They're life-giving. And we can display the gospel in the depths in which we go in those relationships. Right? I, I, can show, I can show the power of the gospel when I'm asking somebody, I want to tell you a hard truth, even though I know this is not normally how friends talk to each other, but I love you enough to want to do you spiritual good. But I, I just want to encourage you as a way of thinking about this text and applying it. Every now and then, just stop and take stock of your relationships, even at this church. And ask yourself, if all of your relationships started to look the same, as in all of your friends are people who look and act like you in some way or another. And that's, if that's the case, don't, don't beat yourself up about it, but let me just encourage you. Over the next coming months, make concerted efforts to put yourself in the place where you're friends and getting to know other people. Instead of immediately coming in and going to talk to the people that are in your home group or that you kind of bump shoulders with a lot, go introduce yourself to someone who is different. If you're a family with young kids, maybe invite the empty nesters over for lunch one day. Or older members, ask a younger member to coffee or lunch. Not breakfast, because I know many of you are already asleep, still asleep at breakfast. But just ask them to, to coffee or lunch. And I, I just want to pray, we should be praying that the breadth of our relationships, that it would display something about what unites us together. And that it's more than just geography, that it's more than just that we have the same hobbies, that we like this certain style of worship even. It's that we are united around Christ and we're looking to do spiritual good for one another. And I think that that kind of community centered in Jesus displays the gospel to a watching world in a way that is unique. So we want to display the gospel that is united in Jesus, a community united in Jesus. Okay, third, we want a community, Jesus' community, is finding joyful satisfaction in promised eternal rewards. Find joyful satisfaction in promised eternal rewards. This really gets us into the body of the sermon. If you're familiar with the Gospels, you may have heard, as Mark read, you may hear kind of in the background echoes of the Sermon on the Mount, so Matthew 5 through 7. And one of the clearest kind of parallels here is the declaration at the beginning, known as the Beatitudes. But but like everything else we've talked to up to this point, this is a surprising list. Uh, I, I told you I logged into Instagram. I don't spend time on Instagram, but I went on, on Facebook and Twitter yesterday and just searched the hashtag blessed. And if you do that, what you find are pictures of new houses. Uh, I found a, somebody with a picture of a big ribeye steak. Hashtag blessed. Uh, words of achievement, things that you have done. And Jesus, his picture that he posts and paints is very, very different. Look at verse 20. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day. And leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. And then those blessings are paired with the corresponding woes, starting in verse 24. But woe to you who are rich, 
for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. Now, taking these two things together, I, I want us I want us to be aware and just careful about some ways we can misunderstand, possibly just like misapply this text. And the, the first is that this is not just a blanket condemnation of wealth, nor just a blanket commendation of poverty and need. If, if that were the case, then the way that you apply this sermon, if all those who are poor are blessed, then the application is to go and make yourself poor. Make yourself hungry. Go be very sad. And if you do that, if you do it well enough, then you'll receive eternal reward. But that's not exactly what Jesus is doing. He's not saying go and make yourself this way. We actually see examples later in Luke of people who kind of defy some of that kind of logic. So Luke 8, 1 through 3, there's this list of women who are wealthy enough that they travel around with Jesus and they provide for the needs of he and his disciples. Joseph of Arimathea. In Luke 23, when Jesus comes off the cross, he's wealthy enough to go bury Jesus in a tomb that he owns, one that's never been used before. So this is not just a simple formula, money and people who have it, bad. Poverty, people who are there, good. But the second kind of, I want to say that, but I'm also, I get nervous saying that too. Because I don't want, in hearing this, you to so spiritualize this that we blunt the edges that we need to hear. Uh, we, we can, if we're just very honest and look around here or just drive through the neighborhood where this church is, we recognize that this is a relatively affluent area, that we are in general a relatively affluent people. And texts like this, it can make us really uncomfortable. And so the natural inclination, the thing we want to do is just kind of round off the edges. Make it a spiritual, no physical talking, but the reality of what, what this text does tell us, what things we need to be aware of as we go through even the Gospel of Luke, is the circumstances of your life can help or hinder your desire to see Jesus as your only hope. Right. So the reality is that both rich and poor have need. They have great spiritual need. Every one of us apart from Christ, has deep spiritual need, and there is no amount of money or food or laughter that can fill that. But the danger is that material wealth, full bellies, happiness, that can insulate us from our awareness of that need, of our need that we have. It's why he will interact with the rich young ruler, and after it, when Jesus says, hey, go away and sell all your goods, he will turn and say, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. It's that the the wealthy and the well-fed and the merrymakers are more likely to look at this world and feel themselves really at home, quite satisfied with how things have turned out for us here. And you can even even start to say, I've got enough here. I feel so happy here that as you look towards eternity, it sounds bland and boring. But for those who belong to Christ, looking to that day, as verse 23 says, we look to that day where we find joy and satisfaction when the kingdom of God is in full bloom. This is really important. Jesus is not against joy. 
He's not saying his followers, if you want to know who is a real Christian, go find the bunch of grumpy curmudgeons out there. They're the followers, the real ones. But he does take joy and hope and he redefines where that is placed. He does say, who defines your joy is very different. And when we will experience fullness of joy is vastly different than what we would see around us. Really, the the whole emphasis of these verses, all of this taken together, is that Jesus is building an upside-down kind of kingdom. There is a great reversal taking place in his community. And church, we can maybe get at this just by thinking of these couple of questions to think about our own lives, our own community building here. And the first is this, who is it you're trying to please? Who is it that we're trying to please? If we are living our lives speaking in a way that's seeking to please ourselves to find all of our satisfaction here or even if if that sounds low and like i'm a better person than that we could say i want to please those around us i want i want everyone around me to be proud of that jesus says that can be a dangerous territory that's the territory of the false prophets right that's what verse 26 says they speak well of them the false prophets are the ones who were said ah we love his prophecy the applause of men is a deadening kind of sedative. But in following Jesus, our lives are now oriented to pleasing one person. It's not those around us. It's not ourselves. It's pleasing the Son of Man. And even we want to see Him above all things. And that impacts what you do with what you have. It has an impact on how we spend our money. It has an impact on how we stand on certain Even cultural issues with clarity and conviction that means sometimes we may be hated and condemned. That we may well encounter harm and hatred for his name, as we sang earlier, in Christ's mind forevermore. You may find yourself in a place where today what you experience is harm and hatred for his name. But always come back to this question. Who are you wanting to hear the words, well done, from? Who do you want to say, well done, to your life? Or do, you, do you long to hear that from a coworker more than you do from Christ? Do you want your, your parents or your Facebook friends or even your children to look and say, you've done so well? There's nothing wrong with wanting that in some ways, but we want to say the, the one, the one person above all others that I want to look at my life and at your life and at our church and at the end of time say, well done, good and faithful servant. It's Christ. We long to please him above ourselves and above others. And then the second question is related to that. Where does your hope and your joy reside? Where does your hope and where does your joy reside? The Christian life is one of joy. You can just go read the New Testament and find all of these commandments. Rejoice always. Pray continually. It's a life of joy. I love hearing you talk in the hallways after church. Uh, when I remember when Miss Betty had surgery, somebody praying that Miss Betty wouldn't lose her sense of humor. And she's not. And we're grateful for that. I love seeing children run around with little blue things around their lips because they made him as patsy run after church because of a lollipop. We should thank God for these kind of joys, but these moments of joys are just small, small little pictures. 
They're small things that are pointing us forward to a day when true joy and great glory and satisfaction comes for those who are in Christ. And it comes on that day. That's why we said the Christian community is what Jesus is building is an upside down one of community. One that sees our greatest joy lies beyond this life. And so it sets all of our hopes and our joys there in the life to come. The Christian life is one of delayed gratification. And that proves difficult not just for kids to learn but also for adults. Friends, that, that delay is well worth it. We even feel some of that joy here, but we long for the day when all that joy is in full bloom. That's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4. right? That you, you weigh these two things and one weighs much heavier. 2 Corinthians 4, 16-18. We do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen but to the things that are unseen for the things that are seen are transient but the things that are unseen are eternal and if you're here with us this morning and you're you're not a christian we are so glad that you're here you, you may have heard this text read and even in the reading of it and the explanation of it you may think this is a terrible terrible ad campaign for following jesus but I think that you'll actually find that we all have something that's in common. Right? We are all out to pursue that thing which we think will give us maximal joy. Where we find the most joy. That is just par for the course for human nature. We pursue what we think brings us most joy. And you, if you are a non-Christian friend in the room with us, you have some sort of answer to that question. Where you will find the most joy. And maybe it's a life filled with all the things you could ever want, a comfortable belly, a, a nice house. Or if that just, again, seems too crass, if you're like, I'm, I'm better than that, I know life doesn't matter at all these just things. Maybe it's just good relationships that you enjoy, a people that you love. You say, my joy is found there. Friends, we, we as Christians in the room, we have an answer to this question too, where we think we will find ultimate joy. While we want to enjoy the gifts that God has graciously granted to us, the relationships that we have with one another in this church and that he's given in our lives, we have found and we want to proclaim that we think maximal joy is found only in God, only through Christ. Jesus tells this really powerful kind of one verse parable in Matthew thirteen forty four: The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. And then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Friends, that's it. That's why we can undergo poverty and hunger and need and mocking and scorn. Because we have found our joy in Christ and in the kingdom that he has purchased by his blood. They have a, we have just sung earlier, even our heart has found its treasure. <laughs> that Christ is ours forevermore. For the joy that is to come, the greatest joy that is held out for us, we are ready to give up everything. And if you're here with us, again, if you're here and you're not a Christian, and you want to know, tell me more about that kind of joy. We'd love to talk to you about where we have found and how we have set our joy in Christ, how we have turned from death to life, 
and found that he is worth everything. You can come and talk to me after the service, or if you came here with a friend who is a Christian, just ask to go to lunch. Ask them questions about this thing, how they came to see Jesus as the greatest joy worth pursuing and worth giving their lives to, putting their sin to death for and finding life in Christ. Now, members of Philadelphia Baptist Church, I'm going to just ask you, how are we doing at encouraging one another in patient endurance for that future joy? I know I've, I've talked to some of you over the past weeks and months who say life is not going like I thought it would go. I, I thought that I was kind of headed towards this job path or this promotion that was coming and it did not come. I know some who, who would say like, why am I, why am I single? Why am I widowed? When I look at others around me who are enjoying those relationships, why when you look around and see the wicked seem to prosper and the righteous seem to suffer? Friend, don't lose sight of where joy lies. Don't lose sight of where your joy lies. It may be that in these things we going through, these light momentary afflictions that God is telling you, you can loosen your grip on the things, on the full belly, on the laughter even, and that there's coming a day when that will be there. And don't forget, friends, I, 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 as I look around and see some of you singing that we're almost home, it is enough to help me to keep going. And for you who are struggling with that, who say, I feel nothing but need, I feel that life right now is hard, if you've set your hope in that place, if you've set your hope in Christ, you're almost home. And joy is right around the bend. So keep going. This is what brings us together. This is the kind of community God is, binging, is building in his church. A community that sets its joy there. And that pushes one another to say, don't get satisfied. Don't just be satisfied in what we have here. Long for that day. Build your life in that time when we will see Christ face to face. Now this is a, you can see why I didn't want to cover the other half of this passage. This is just a strange start to Jesus' community. That Jesus would have flunked any business or marketing class. He spends all of his preparation time. He doesn't come up with a business plan on how to make this group of disciples kind of spread throughout the Mediterranean world. He says, I think, I think I'll prepare by spending all night praying. Uh, he doesn't go and say, I really want some of the religious elite on my team. I need a few influencers who can go and spread that to their other friends. He goes and finds people who are natural born enemies and says, I'm going to make that people into this body. And then he tells them that if you want to belong to me, if, if you really are my people, what, what kind of characterizes us is you have hopes set in place where you can't see it. You're going to be hungry and hated, heartbroken in this life. It's not how you and I would start a community, but the church of Jesus Christ is meant to be a distinct display in the world. We are meant in our lives together and your life individually, even not just called to uh, we're called to be proclaiming the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into light. We are showing the distinct beauty of what it looks like to belong to Christ. And even now, as we want that to come in our church, we can't forget what Jesus taught us and even close now in praying that the Lord would build this kind of community in our church. So let me, let me close us in prayer and ask the Lord that he would build his community here. 
Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you, by your blood, have purchased people who are natural-born enemies, who are not just here because we like everyone around us, or that we are like everyone around us, but because we have united our lives to Christ and say, we, if you are united to him, and I'm united to him, then we are going the same direction. I pray you'd build that kind of community here. That churches across our city would be those kind of places, embassies of heaven, places where people can look in and see what it looks like to one day enjoy fellowship with Christ forever. We pray that you would set our hopes and our affections there. And for all the things that lure us and that deaden us to eternity, would you help us, Lord, to see them, to, to long for that day more than this day. We pray that you would fill our minds with the joy that is coming for those who belong to Christ. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.